You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. There was a recent survey taken uh, on what are the most uh, valued sentences or phrases to hear. And uh, the top three most favorite sentences or phrases to hear uh, sum up the heart of every person alive. And they are this. Uh, Number one is, I love you. Number two is, I forgive you. And number three, supper's ready. And I I think that is the heart of every person alive. I mean, who doesn't want to hear those words that I love you, I forgive you, and I have prepared a place for you at the table with me. Uh, There's only one person who who has ever been willing and who has the authority to say that to every single person alive, to every single person in this room. There's only one who has the authority to say this, regardless of your past, regardless of your present, regardless of your struggles or what you're going through or what you've been through, regardless of of your current circumstance, no one is beyond the reach of Jesus Christ and his words to you today. I love you, I forgive you, and I have prepared a place for you at my table. What we're about to dive into is the most dynamic story of of, of humanity, which is the reason why we're even here as a church, and that is the, the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, there are uh, many accounts of Jesus' life, but there are only four that matter. And, and of the four, we're going to focus on one. The biblical story of that invitation to come to my table that I forgive you and that I love you. That biblical story of that invitation is found in four gospel accounts. The true story of Jesus is found in four gospel accounts. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel simply means good news, but it's not just any news, but it's good life-changing news. This is not something that you would read in the paper and turn the page on. This is not a pop-up or breaking news from any news site, and then you read it and swipe it off. This is the most dynamic, most important, life-changing good news you'll ever hear. What is that gospel? What is that good news that we can be redeemed and restored to relationship with our Creator? The good news is that Jesus is the power over every area of need in our life. The good news is this, is that God through Jesus forgives sinners. That's the good news. That's this dynamic, amazing good news. And that good news or gospel story is given in four accounts. There is only one gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the gospel is given in four accounts. Each is unique. And this is kind of some background is that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you've ever had a Bible, the first four books, or if you have one, or if you have a digital Bible, the first four books of the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That is not the order in which they were written. 
and uh, they share four different accounts of the life of Jesus through four different eyes, four different perspectives. In fact, take a look at the chart that I have on the screen is that each one of them has a different audience in mind. Matthew was writing primarily to Jewish seekers where he uses a lot of the Old Testament, quotes a lot of the Old, more than any of the other writers. He quotes the Old Testament and references old holidays of the Old Testament and traditions and speaks directly to Pharisees, Sadducees, and to the priests. Matthew is written primarily to Jewish seekers. Mark is written primarily to Roman seekers or also known as Gentiles because what Mark does is he explains Jewish customs. He translates words from Hebrew into Greek and he gives a lot of Roman references in relation to the Old Testament. He quotes the Old Testament sparingly because he's writing primarily to Roman seekers. And then you have Luke. He's writing primarily to Greek Seekers, where he gives a tremendous amount of detail. It's deeply researched. And Luke himself was a physician, so he did a lot of interviews. And because he's relating to a lot of people who are fact-driven oriented people, he gives the facts. And then John was written primarily to Christians or new Christians. He deals greatly with theology and has a lot of Jesus' teaching. If you were to kind of look at the four of them as a kind of uh, overlapping is kind of what the main theme was, Matthew was Jesus the Messiah King with a focus on fulfilled prophecy. Mark is Jesus the servant savior with a focus on the miracles of Jesus. Luke is a focus of Jesus the son or the son of man, which means uh, he focuses on the ideas and the teaching of the Messiah. Uh, And then John focuses on Jesus the son of God with a deep focus on spiritual theology. Guys, there's only one gospel but there are four accounts and each one is rich in meaning and depth. Just because you've read one doesn't mean you read the others. However, because it is news, it must be told. And because it is to be told, it must be believed. But when it is believed, your life is changed forever and you are saved. You're given salvation. So in March of 20, uh, March 27th of this year in, in less than two months in about a month and a half is Easter 2016. And uh, what I want to challenge you to do uh, right now and moving all the way to Easter is I want you to pray about bringing at least one person, maybe two people to Easter with you on March 27th. Now you can bring them before then. You don't have to wait till March 27th to bring a friend because what we're going to do between now and Easter is we're going to use the gospel of Mark to walk us to Easter. Walk us through the life of Jesus to Easter. And we're going to walk all the way there. And on March 27th, we're going to celebrate the resurrection as told through the gospel account of Mark. Mark is divided into two main parts. The first part is chapters 1 through 8, where he focuses on our king, the identity of Jesus. And then chapters 9 through 6 focus on the cross, which is the purpose of Jesus. So you have our king and you have his cross. And what we are going to do for the next uh, six weeks is we are going to fly over Mark. Now, we're not going to go story by story and focus on every story. We're going to give a framework. And what I want to challenge you to do is to read Mark. In fact, Mark is so short, you could probably read it anywhere within an hour to two hours. It is very short. 
So I want to challenge you to read it. We will be selecting sections to highlight. We won't read every verse. It's a highlight of Jesus' steps. So we're going to, this series is called Walking in the Steps of Jesus. And what we're going to do is we're going to take major themes as we walk to the resurrection. It's ideal for those who struggle to read. The book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. Some of you guys are like, man, I, I don't think I've ever read anything that wasn't mandatory. You know, some of you guys, uh, you know, reading the Bible is a real struggle for you. Mark is a great place to read. Because Mark is short, it's precise, it's to the point, it's a great place to kick off your faith if you're kind of new to walking with Jesus and you want to know about Jesus. Whenever somebody comes to me and says, I, don't, I haven't been reading the Bible, where do I start? The first thing I say is Mark. And I usually don't tell people, you know, we read the Bible and we think it's read like another book. We just open it up to the first page and start reading. And, uh, and then all of a sudden we get through Genesis and all of a sudden Exodus, uh, okay, Deuteronomy, we're out. Right, Most of you have not got past Deuteronomy. You know that. So what I would challenge you to do is to read the gospel accounts first, starting with Mark. Meet Jesus. Walk with Jesus. And then when you go back to the Old Testament, you're going to see Jesus all through the Old Testament. But if you struggle with reading, Mark is a great place to start your faith. Uh, in mission, it's often the very first book of the entire Bible translated for people who don't have a Bible. Uh, Mark is dynamic. Let me tell you the world during the life of Jesus. We're going we're gonna to touch on the players. We're going to touch on the background of Mark. The, you know, I, I, I love week one of a new series particularly book study series, because the teacher in me comes out, and I love to lay out for you kind of a palette of background. And all of a sudden, the Bible comes alive when you understand the context in which it was written. So here's the background during the life of Jesus. This is the world of Jesus. I want you to take a look at this chart. It's real basic, is that Rome had conquered the majority of the world, including Israel. Rome had built roads People and news now for the first time in the history of civilization has the ability to travel fast. Uh, Roman rulers, they carried out the law with a heavy and violent hand in all the provinces that they conquered, including Israel. Rome was a pagan, multi-god community and society where there were many religious groups. And they based their society on tolerance not on this exclusivity that the gospel or Judaism claims, which is there is one God to be worshipped. So Rome immediately had problems with all Jewish people and all Christians, as we're going to find out. Um, It had been, by the time Jesus showed up, it had been 300 years since a prophet had spoken to Israel. The last one to speak was Malachi. That's the end of the Old Testament. And it had been 300 years since then. And every Jewish person was waiting for the promised Messiah. Messiah means promised anointed one. And they were waiting for him. In Hebrew, the word is Messiah. And in Greek, the word is Christ. Christ and Messiah are the same word in two different languages. So Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the promised anointed one, the guy all through the Old Testament that was promised to come and to save and redeem and restore. They were all looking for somebody to come. But because they were under such hardship with with Roman authority, the Messiah they were looking for was a military leader who was to overthrow the Roman government and give them back their nation. They were looking for a great military leader, and they were praying every day that he would show up. 
There was a strong caste system. That means you were either a publican, a soldier, religious leader, or poor and sick. And regardless of where you were, there was an upper and a lower, and there was no crossing over. It was like a line was drawn. You're poor, you're out. You're sick, you're out. You're Roman citizen, you're in. You're a priest, you have a level of money and resources and authority and power. It was very, very strict. Now, here's the players in the stories of the New Testament, particularly the Gospels. Understand the cast of characters. I'm going to have a few of you kind of help me to understand, help the group to understand kind of what the average was here. So, There are the Roman officials, and uh, these are the regional governors and military presence. Like if you've ever gone to like some uh, countries and they have like, like I remember the first time I went to Guatemala on a mission trip, we went to McDonald's and there were guys in full military and machine guns standing at at the ends of each counter at McDonald's, blew us away. They were just standing there with their hands on the trigger in McDonald's. It's like a whole nother world right? That's Israel. You have this, these Roman authorities everywhere with their swords drawn, their armor on, ready to fight, full guard on, heavy hand, and they were abusive. I remember when we were in Guatemala and we were like, we were told, don't look at them, don't take pictures of them, and don't stand next to them. Okay, now I don't know if things have changed since then, but uh, that scared us. We were... Uh, I was a youth pastor taking a group of teenagers, and our teenagers were scared. They weren't scared. They were scared. So you can imagine how Roman authority might look like. There were soldiers everywhere. So I'm going to ask eight of you just to randomly stand up. I'm not going to make you come down. So eight people stand up if you could. Just eight people. There's one, two, three, four, five. I need three more people. Three. Just, just stand up. Six. Seven, eight. Okay, here we go. Eight people. You represent the Roman uh, occupation, all right? Then there are the priests. These were the guys that performed all the temple services. They were the most powerful people in the time of Jesus. And the priests also made up what were known as the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish religious court system and political group that worked with the local Roman governments. And in the Sanhedrin, there were... Pharisees, there were Sadducees, and there were scribes. The Pharisees were ultra-strict Jewish people who were legalistic and proud of their dedication to everything legalistic in the Old Testament. They followed the rules like precisely, and they were angry at Jesus all the time because Jesus broke all the rules. There were the Pharisees. The Sadducees were considered the wealthy Jewish class, and they rejected tradition. Uh, They were more of the liberal Jewish person, and they liked and worked well with the Romans. Uh, And then there were the scribes. They worked with the Pharisees, and they wrote down or scribed. They wrote down all the uh, Old Testament. So Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees, and priests, why don't I have you? I need uh, uh, six people, seven people to stand up in a group this size. Seven people. If I could get seven uh, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six. One more. Seven. All right. That represents the Sanhedrin, the, uh, which is the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the, uh, the scribes. And then there was an activist group. They were kind of like terrorists. They were known as zealots. And basically, they were an activist group that used violence to constantly 
overthrow Roman presence in Israel. So what they would do is they would, they would literally blow up Roman uh, uh, locations. They would slip the throat of Roman guards and they would start riots. They were terrorists. But their goal was to chase Rome out. But no matter how much fighting they caused and did, which lasted for hundreds of years, by the way, uh, that 300 years where there was no prophet, there was a series of what are known as Jewish wars. And then after the life of Christ, there were more Jewish wars. They were led by zealots who, and, and a lot of the people thought the Messiah was going to be a zealot because there were very uh, popular zealots. One of them, probably one of the most popular, his name was Maccabee, and he's responsible for what's known as the Maccabean Revolt. And if you've ever heard of the holiday Hanukkah, well, Hanukkah is not a biblical holiday. It's a holiday that celebrates Maccabee, the Maccabean Revolt, a Jewish war during that predated the life of Christ in that 300 uh, silent year period. So these zealots were constantly stirring up trial and trouble, and that's why the Roman government was even harder. So I need about four people to stand up to be zealots. Okay. <laughs> Heck yeah. <laughs> All right. Simmer down, terrorists. All right. All right. Now I want you to look around the room. These are the power players in the life of Christ. You've got the Sadducees, the Pharisees. You've got the scribes. You've got the Sanhedrin court. You've got the priesthood. Of course, you have Roman government that is uh, heavy-handed, strong. You've got local government. They call him a king, but he's basically a mayor. Maybe you've ever heard of King Herod. He's basically the local mayor of Israel, and he has little authority, but he's called a king. But then there's a governor. Have you ever heard of Pontius Pilate? He was the governor of, of the whole whole region. He hated the Jewish people, hated being there. And Herod was a Hellenistic guy. He was more of a Sadducee. He was very liberal. He liked to live the high life, lived a very rich life, uh, extravagant life, though he was a Jewish person. He lived like a Greek. So he was called a, a Hellenistic Jew. So you have these levels of government and power and authority. Basically, it's government occupation of a foreign uh, ruler on a country that wants independence, and it wasn't coming anytime soon. In fact, it didn't come at all until uh, 1945, or 46, sorry, uh, 46 and 47. So it was a long time. All right, so all the rest of you sitting down, you're the poor. You're the disenfranchised. You're the market people. You're the people who are just trying to squeak by in life. All right, have a seat. That's the players in the story. Roman rule was heavy. Religion was cold, heartless. Life is hard. God's people feel abandoned, and they're looking and praying for help. Here's the stage for Mark. Mark is a unique gospel in this. John Mark, the guy who wrote the book of Mark, is actually the cousin of Barnabas. Maybe you've heard of Barnabas in the book of Acts. Some people believe that Barnabas might have written the book of Hebrews. We don't know. Um, But John Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. He traveled with the apostle Paul. He traveled with the apostle Peter. And he was a traveler with Barnabas on mission work and ministry. His house, his mother's house, is the location of the upper room where Jesus had the Last Supper, and it's believed to be the location where they prayed and the Holy Spirit fell in Acts chapter 2. His mother is one of the three Marys that went and saw the empty tomb at the resurrection of Jesus. So John Mark has been around for a while, and, and 
the question is, why is a guy who's not an apostle have a book in the Bible? And the reason is that John Mark is actually uh, the dictation from the apostle Peter. It is uh, widely believed and within the first uh, by 100 AD, uh, the early church had written that John Mark is the dictation of the apostle Peter. As Peter relayed to John Mark, his scribe, the life of Jesus, John Mark wrote it down. In fact, if you were to look at Acts chapter 10, verse 33 to 43, it's the outline of the book of Mark, and it's a sermon of Peter where he basically outlines the book of Mark. So what's up with Mark? Well, here's a few things to know. It's the shortest of all the gospels, and it's the first one ever written. It's considered one of the earliest gospel accounts of the entire New Testament. In fact, all of the other three letters sourced Mark. Let me put it this way. If I was John and I was writing out, I had my notes of walking with Jesus and I'm putting them all together, I would take Mark's gospel and use Mark's gospel as a chronological order and then use all my notes and then write out my gospel. That's how John was written. That's how Luke was written. And that's how Matthew was written. Mark is the most chronological of all the four. It's the shortest. It has the least amount of teaching in it. It's an action oriented book or gospel. His account really lays heavy the miracles of Jesus. And he gives them matter-of-factly. In fact, it is so action-packed, it is so fast-paced that Mark uses the word immediately 42 times. And to tell it like it is style, it includes 19 amazing miracles and only four parables. It's heavy on the miracles, light on the teaching. For some of you, that's exactly what you need to know, who Jesus is and his power and ability in your life. So if you haven't read the Bible, Mark is the place I'm going to ask you to read as we go through Mark uh, this uh, Easter season. So with an emphasis on the outcast and forgotten, Mark focuses on the responses of others to Jesus, the good and the bad. Take a look at this chart right here. Basically, other than a very short time in Jesus' life where he was in Egypt as, an, as a child, as an infant, uh, his, his life was spent right here. And this little, he was born in Bethlehem and his family moved to Nazareth where he grew up. That's why it's called Jesus of Nazareth because he grew up in Nazareth. And once his ministry started, the first half of his ministry was in Galilee. The second half was in that second part, Samaria and Judea. So you've got a very small area of land where Jesus spent most of his life. And his entire ministry was in this small region. So the book of uh, Mark and the Gospels all have this location. And Mark asks you, the Gospels ask us three simple questions that if you answer yes to, will change your life forever. And those three questions are very simple. Did Jesus live? Did Jesus die? Did Jesus rise? Jesus himself actually asked the most pivotal question that we must all answer in Mark. In Mark chapter 8, 29, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? This question is presented all throughout the gospel of Mark in different formats in different ways. And Jesus often asked, as he did in Mark 11, he was asked by others this question, by what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you the authority to do this? He was constantly confronted in Mark by whose authority are you? Jesus often was responding with, who do you say that I am? 
But I love how Mark gives Jesus credentials in verse 1. What Mark does is he lays out the entire gospel with the credentials of Christ in the very first verse. Mark, right at the start, clarifies the authority of Jesus. Let's take a look at it in Mark 1. It says, the beginning, the beginning of the good news or the gospel about Jesus the Messiah, who is the promised one, that one that you guys have been waiting for, that's Jesus, the Son of of God, which means God in the flesh. He sets the stage in verse 1. This is the beginning of everything you need to know about Jesus. He is the promised one who has come to redeem and to save, and he is God with us on this earth. He is the Messiah and the Son of God. Mark jumps straight from that into the ministry of Jesus. There's no genealogy. There's no begats. There's no virgin birth. There's no Christmas story. There's no shining light in Bethlehem. He gets straight to the baptism of Jesus because Mark is like, boom, 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 boom. What we're going to do is we're going to read chapter 1. We're going to fly over a bunch of these stories in chapter 1, and then we're going to lay out the big message in chapter 1 is the authority of Jesus. He clarifies it in verse 1 and sets the stage in one chapter what Jesus' life is is all about. So let's dive in to Mark chapter uh, 1, and let's start with verse 4. Jesus is announced. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism, which means immersion or cleansing, preaching a immersed cleansing of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole of Judea, countryside, and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So you have John the Baptist out there saying, repent for the kingdom of God is about to show up on the scene. That's his big message. All right, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That means get ready, cleanse yourself, get ready because the Messiah is about to walk in. Now, John wasn't just any guy. He was a wild man. He lived on the land and he, lay, he ate off the land. He ate bugs and honey. He dressed in animal skin and he was preparing and yelling, get ready. Mark 7, 1, 7, it says, and this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He says, what I'm doing is just working on the outside, but what he's going to do is he's going to work on you on the inside. I'm just immersing you on the outside. He's going to have you soaked from the inside out. You're going to be baptized and immersed and cleansed by the Holy Spirit through Jesus. So the announcement of Jesus. Then it goes on to the baptism of Jesus because Mark is like immediately, boom, on to the next thing. Jesus shows up at John's baptismal service in verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. This was as an example to us about our baptism and to affirm the work of John, saying that, yes, John is right about it, and here I am. Some of the other gospels give more details. Mark is light on the details. He's like, boom, boom, boom. Okay, it's more of a chronological to the point. So if you're like, wow, what was that like? Well, then you can read one of the other gospels and find a little bit more about it. But just as Jesus was coming out of the water, uh, he, John uh, the Baptist, uh, he was called the John the Baptist, John, uh, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending 
on him like a dove. This parallels Genesis 1, by the way, where the Spirit of the Lord hovered uh, and fell upon the face of the water. Here comes the Holy Spirit upon the water again, revealing who Jesus is. This is a parallel of Genesis 1. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son and whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus, deity is fully revealed. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not since creation have you seen all three uh, visualized so clearly. And it's at this moment, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity, triune, three in one. Jesus is baptized. It moves on. Jesus is tempted. Verse 12, at once the Spirit went out of the, uh, at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. Other gospels elaborate more on the details. John was later captured and he was put in prison for his condemning of King Herod's lifestyle, the mayor, the local mayor, basically. Mark doesn't tell us that story. Why? Because Mark focuses on Jesus. He references characters, but everything Mark writes is Jesus, 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 Jesus. So he says this. This is all he says after John was put in prison. That's it. That's all he says. I mean, if you didn't know who John was, you didn't know any of the story, like, wait, 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 why was he put in prison? What happened to him there? Mark says he was put in prison. After he was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of the gospel of God. And this was his message. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God comes near or has arrived in front of you. Repent and believe the good news. So John the Baptist's message was repent for the kingdom of God is coming. Jesus' message is repent because it is here. It is so near, it is right in front of you. Now, it was a gospel of repentance and change. And then Jesus calls his disciples immediately. Verse 16, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, he said, and I will send you out to be fisher of men or fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. It goes on to say that he begins to see a couple other disciples and says, hey, come follow me. Verse 21, Jesus drives out evil spirits. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach the kingdom of God. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority. Circle that in your Bible if you're writing in it. He had authority, not as the teachers of the law. His authority was evident. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit, cried out. I love this. A man in their synagogue was possessed. Guys, listen, church is filled with possessed people. And I find this so ironic that this possessed man was combating Jesus in the temple. And he says, uh, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Holy One is Messiah of God, that Son of God, God in the flesh. He says, man, the evil spirit begins to call out in fear. And Jesus says, I love this. He says, be quiet. It's like, I'm not here to have a conversation with you. I'm not here to debate you. Basically, it's, that's, a, that's, that's English translation for shut up. He says, come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were so amazed, they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. Circle that. Remember that. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. 
And then, not only is he casting out evil spirits, he starts healing the sick. Check this out in Mark chapter 1. Remember, Mark's like, bam, bam, bam. It's like a ping pong game. He's like all over. And then this, and then this, and then this, and then this. Verse 29, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew, Simon's mother-in-law. Simon, who later is called Peter, you know, the famous Peter of the disciples. Before he was called Peter, his name is Simon. And this is Simon's mother-in-law, which means Peter was married. We don't know who his wife is. She's not mentioned, but his mother-in-law is. We don't know whether she is alive or whether she passed away. But this is Peter's, his disciple's mother-in-law, okay, was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. It's like, Jesus is like, I'm hungry. Well, mom's sick. Well, I'll take care of that. So, we're hungry, you know. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and the demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many of them who had various diseases. He drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So the Mark says a few more verses where he continues to pray. He spends some time alone in prayer. He preaches. He casts out more devils. And in Mark chapter 2, it starts off with one of these great stories that some of you have heard, that while Jesus is preaching in a house, uh, some friends couldn't get in the door, so they climbed on the roof, dug through the the roof of the house, dropped their friend right in the middle of Jesus' lap, and Jesus uh, healed this man. We're going to take a look at that story in a minute. But again, he healed the sick. Man, from there, Jesus' ministry is explosive. And what happens after Mark 1 and Mark 2 is that we're going to talk next week is the controversy of Jesus. Because you would think that a guy that was just preaching, you know, this 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 kingdom of God message and healing the sick and casting out demons would be supported, but he wasn't. We're going to find out why. Guys, listen, each one of these stories are powerful sermons all on their own. And many pastors have preached sermons on every single one of these. I have on many of them. The purpose of this series is to give you a framework for the gospel that you're reading in Mark, the big picture, the context. So what I want to do is I want us to take a look for a few minutes at what just happened and sum up the big idea of what Mark was saying in chapter one is that Jesus has all authority. I want you to write that down. Actually, it's in your notes. John Mark establishes right off the top, it can be summed up with the authority of Jesus. Jesus has all authority. In verse one, he kicks it off. He is the promised redeemer, the savior, the Messiah, the Christ, the one we've been looking for. By the way, Yeshua, which is his name, we're going to show you what it looked like next week in the original language. So when you, as they read it, as they, as they saw it, we're going to show you what they would have seen his name look like. In Hebrew, his name is Yeshua, and in Greek is Isus. And in Hebrew, Yeshua means, uh, uh, it means Savior. And, and I love this, in the Greek, Isus means healer. He is the Savior healer. He's the one who heals the heart, heals the soul, redeems and saves us, uh, gets us back in relationship. And right off the top, Mark says, that's who it is. I want to tell you not just about any human being, 
I'm not just going to talk to you about a guy who lived a few years ago, or for us a few thousand years ago, or a couple thousand years ago. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not just going to tell you a sad story about a guy who did some good stuff and was falsely condemned and put to death and how God loved him so much that he let him come back to life. That's not the story of the Gospels. The gospel story is that God came to us. The Messiah, the Savior, the Healer, the Redeemer has come. The one who has all authority stepped onto the scene. And I love how Mark says, verse 1, confirmed again at the baptism of Jesus. The Father says, this is my son. This is me in the flesh. Again and again, Mark confirms the power of Jesus over the earth and all the things in the earth as creator, God in the flesh. You see, Jesus is more than a teacher. He's more than a prophet. Jesus is more than a wise man. Jesus is not just a guide or a guru. He did not reach enlightenment. He enlightens those who follow him. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew what he came to do. And Jesus knew who was going to take that message to the world as he handpicked his followers. He was fully in charge because Jesus is and has all authority. That's the first thing Mark says. Number two is this, is that Jesus has authority to call the shots in our life. He says right off the top, Jesus is in charge of your life. In Mark 1, uh, John the Baptist appears preaching a baptism of repentance. Uh, but then when Jesus starts preaching, his message didn't change much. In Mark 1, 15, Jesus' message was this. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Guys, listen. The message of John the Baptist was repent and believe. The message of the disciples has always and is always repent and believe. And the message of Jesus was repent and believe. Guys, listen. The gospel is not about just believing. It is about turning also. And this is important because Jesus doesn't just want your heart. He wants your body. He doesn't just want your mind. He wants your actions. He wants your life. It is repent. Here's what repent means. Uh, I've defined it as this. is Basically, it means to turn around. It means a change of mind. It means a change of direction. This is repent. This is me without Jesus. This is me with Jesus. That's the gospel. I believe, therefore I'm turning. And my reflection of my belief is played out in my actions in my life. The message of all the disciples, the message of Jesus is repent and believe. Following Jesus is more than just a decision in life. It's an action in our life. It's a lifestyle. As Jesus would later on say in Luke 6.46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things I say? Are we showing true acceptance of Jesus as Lord by doing the things he says? If you say you are a follower of Jesus Christ, but yet you do not attempt to try to walk in his steps or his actions and follow his leading, you might not be a follower, but you might be great at religion called Christianity. See, a lot of people, they accept the religion of Jesus, but not the relationship or the faith of following Jesus. And I can't assume that everyone in here is a follower of Christ. Many of you have got really good religion. 
Mark tells us up front, to follow Jesus is to leave your old life behind. In Mark 1.16, he calls the disciples, verse 17, he says, come, follow me. Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. See, Mark calls us to follow. He uses the word follow 17 times in this little bitty gospel of, of 16 chapters. He says, follow, follow, including my favorite verse of all time in Mark 8, 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples in Mark 8. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up their cross, and follow me. We are not called to be converts. We are called to be followers. That's the message that Mark lays out in Mark chapter 1. Here's the next thing, is that Jesus has authority over temptation. Jesus was led and tempted, and we are reminded that Jesus can relate to our struggles, our issues, and our battles. And Mark 1, 12, he says, At once the Spirit led him into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. Guys, I want you to realize this, that you have a Redeemer who can relate to you. And right off the top, right at the very beginning, Mark says, this God who is with us can relate to you. He knows your struggles. He knows your battles. He knows your pain. He knows your issues. He's walked in the steps that you have walked. The God of all creation who breathed life into the dust of the earth and brought forth Adam, the very same God is now walking and kicking up the dirt between his toes. He's saying, I understand the struggle. I understand the pain. I know what it feels like to hurt. I know what it feels like to be tempted. And he was tempted. Hebrews 4.15 in the New Living says, The high priest of ours, Jesus, understands our weakness, for he faced all of the same temptations we do, yet he did not sin. Here's the next thing that Mark lays out in Mark chapter 1 is that Jesus has authority over hell. In Mark 1.21, we are told of an encounter of a demonic spirit where this demonic spirit begins to cower and cry and, and, and bow at the feet of Jesus. And you find this all through the gospel of Mark is that whenever Jesus walks onto the scene where there are demons present, that they run at the feet of Jesus throw themselves at his feet and begin to call him the Holy One. Guys, listen. Satan and Jesus are not equal counterparts. All right? They're not arm wrestling in heaven. You know, come on, Jesus! It's not a... They're not equal in any... Man, if you could put this in perspective, if, 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 if you were Jesus, Satan is a fire ant. He's annoying, but you squeeze and pop, and they're dead. They cause light irritation. Satan is an irritation to Jesus who causes a tremendous amount of pain to the people that he created. Jesus and Satan are nowhere near each other on the power level. In fact, Mark says right up from the top, demons are running and throwing themselves at the feet of Jesus, just begging for mercy perpetually all through the Gospels. And he does it straight off in Mark chapter 1. Listen, hell is no match for Jesus. Spiritual powers are powerless before him. Satan and Jesus are not equal. And in Christ, if you are a Christian, you have no reason to fear evil spirits because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And Mark right off the top says, guys, he has authority over hell and demons 
and evil powers. Here's the fifth one, and that is this, that Jesus has authority over sickness. The pattern of Jesus healing the sick is established again and again. Every disease, every damaged cell, every mutated gene, every bad diagnosis, every hopeless effort of your health, every chronic pain, Jesus has authority. He is the healer. He has the power to heal every sickness and every disease. But guys, listen to this. You're going to find in the gospel of Mark, Jesus didn't heal everybody. He did not heal it. Even in Mark chapter one, he did not heal everybody. And that's not because he didn't have authority. That's because he didn't come to start some sort of healthcare plan. Jesus' role was not the issue of health. It was a deeper issue, which we're going to find out in just a second. We're going to close with one last story from Mark. Guys, he has the power to heal you. And you can cry out and pray and know that God is able and sometimes he will. And we celebrate and we ask for that. And when we get it, we thank God for that. But when we don't have it in this life, he has authority over sickness, which means when this life is over, for those of you that are in Christ, you will be healed forever. You'll have no more sickness. My mother died an early death uh, several years ago. And uh, boy, she lived her whole life. She was a polio survivor from a kid. And she had post-polio syndrome uh, throughout most of her life. And she was always having neurological problems and a tremendous amount of muscle disorders and uh, uh, vitamin deficiencies. And right there near the end of her life, she was having all these kind of medical problems. And, and you know, her death came so sudden. It was quite a surprise. And, and I thought, you know what? She's healed. My mother's healed because Jesus has authority over, over all that sickness and disease and what he accomplished on the cross healed us once and for all. She didn't get her healing in this life, but she got it in the next. Jesus has that authority. In Mark chapter two, when those guys dropped their friend through the ceiling, they were looking to Jesus, the healer. And this is what was funny is they dropped him right into the ceiling and they're like, okay, heal him. Here he goes. He's gonna heal him. He's gonna heal. And he's laying there on the mat. Jesus. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, what? No, 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 no. He's, he can't walk. The other thing. Do the other thing. They dropped him in right in the front of Jesus. Verse 20, uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. I'll be like, What? That's not why we did this. That's not why we blooded up our knuckles, ripping through this roof so that we could drop this person and you could say your sins are forgiven. But Jesus knew the real issue, the real need. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They were right, by the way, because Jesus is God. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say, this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. That is a riddle, by the way. Because obviously we're thinking it's harder to say get up and walk because we can see that. But in reality, it's harder to say your sins are forgiven because I could tell you that and it means nothing. Only Christ has the power to forgive you of your sins. Only God alone. They had that right. But what Jesus did, he began to correlate a very simple question is, are you going to believe by faith the things you can't see 
Are you going to believe the things that you can see? But he knew that because they believed in what they saw, he gave them what they needed to see so that they could believe in faith the things they could not see. And this is what he said. He says, what do you think is easier? To say to this paralyzed, uh, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man, referring to himself as the Messiah, has authority on earth to forgive sins. Circle authority. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up. Take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Here's the last thing Jesus has authority over sin. While John baptized with a focus on the outside, Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit with a focus on the inside. Jesus deals with the real issue like he did with that man that dropped through the roof. He says, what, you're, what you think you need, what you in this room think you need is more money. What you think you need is a better job. What you think you need is a better car or your marriage fix. What you think you need is that your kids can get their life together. What you think you need is to get off that drug or that addiction or to get some sort of help and, 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 or to, to go back to school. What you think you need is what you see. But what Jesus knows you need is that your sins are holding you back and keeping you separated from the Creator. Our selfish attitudes and our sinful behavior No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, regardless of your past and present, there is no one beyond the reach of Jesus' grace. You're more than fertilizer. You were made for heaven. Everyone here will spend eternity somewhere. And this is why the gospel was written. Because it's the invitation. It's the invitation of God's words saying, I love you and I forgive you. And I've prepared a place at my table for you if you'll come. That's the gospel message. That's the gospel message. There are a few words in these scriptures that, that, that really define who Jesus is. And these are the very words of Jesus for you today. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time has come, Jesus is saying today, The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. That was his message then. That's the message today. So I want to ask you, have you ever truly responded to the good news? Have you actually said, Jesus, I was wrong, a change of mind. The way I was headed was a way of death and destruction, but I want to turn from my way and I want to turn to your way. Jesus, I want to stop trying to live and rule my own life, but I want to turn and give the steering wheel over to the king and the rule to you in my life. See, that's repentance. See, there's a lot of you that, quote, unquote, believe who Jesus is. And every demon that bowed at the feet of Jesus knew who he was too. They all worshiped him. They all shouted out praises. And they all bowed before him and listened to his every words. But they were not in relationship. They did not repent. They did not turn from their sin. They were bound in their sin. Guys, listen, don't have the faith of demons. Have the faith of disciples who dropped everything to follow. That's the gospel of Mark. And that's the authority that Jesus has that only he has. So I want to pray with you right now. Let's pray.
Father, thank you that you have authority to forgive sin. God, I thank you that you have authority to heal, to redeem, to restore. God, as we're going to find out in the Gospels, in Mark, God, you are the God of the outcasts, those that people didn't want, the forgotten, the faceless numbers in the crowd, those that represented those that were sitting today. God, you love, you care for, you came for. You have authority to set us free. God, I pray that we would follow you, that we would learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that we would believe who you are and what you've done for us and turn from our life and turn to follow your life. God, we're going to stumble along the way, but Lord, we won't stop following and I'm going to ask you guys to do something. If, if you're in this room and, and you're saying, you know what, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And I want you just to, to be honest. If you're not, please don't respond to this. Just, I will respect your transparency and your honesty. But if you're here and you're saying, you know what, I am a follower or I want to be a follower, whether you are one right now or you want to be one, if you're saying, I am a follower of Jesus, I want you to stand up right now. You're saying, you know what, I'm a follower of Jesus. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that if there's anyone who stood up that is not a follower, God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would move in their life. Father, you know the heart and the intentions and the motives of everyone here. Only you have that authority. So God, here we are. Would you raise your hands up to him? Father, here I am. Go ahead and tell him. God, here I am. I will follow. I will drop my nets and I will follow. You have authority to heal the sick, but even if I'm not healed, I will follow. God, you have the authority to cast out evil spirits, but even if I'm tormented by evil spirits, I will follow. God, you have the authority to forgive sin, but even if I keep failing and falling into my sin, God, I will follow. Because you love me and you forgive me and I have a place at your table. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's give Jesus the due worship this morning. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.